We are Hope Church Guildford. This is a recent recording from our Sunday morning gathering. We hope you can join us at the Royal Grammar School on Guildford High Street, Sundays at 10am. Enjoy the message. So, right, we're back in Exodus. Back in Exodus. Hope you found Exodus chapter 12. Our title today is Why Should I Trust in God? And I'm hoping that this morning, I'm not going to give you all the answers why you should trust in God, but from our passage, we're going to get a few that, um, key things that will help us know why we should trust in God. And before we read the passage, I'm just going to play us a video recap of what's happened so far in the first 11 chapters of Exodus. Let's talk about the book of Exodus. Now, you're probably familiar with this book because of the epic story of Moses leading Israel out of slavery from Egypt. Yeah, but that's just the first half of the book. The second half has Moses giving the Ten Commandments to Israel along with these blueprints for making a sacred tent. Now right here in the middle is the story that connects these two halves together and it all takes place at the foot of a famous mountain. Okay, so let's start back at the beginning. So the first thing we have to remember is we're continuing the story from Genesis. Yeah, in Genesis, God promised Abraham that through his family, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And Genesis ends with Abraham's family down in Egypt. When Exodus begins, 400 years have passed, the family grows and becomes the people group now called Israel. But there's this huge problem because the Israelites are enslaved to this king of the Egyptians, a guy called Pharaoh. This guy is really bad news. Yeah, he's horrible. He, he disregards their humanity, he brutally enslaves them, and he even orders that all of the Israelites' sons should be killed by throwing them into the Nile River. He wants to wipe these people out the worst character in the Bible so far. Here's where we meet an Israelite woman who wants to save her son. And so she does throw him in the river, but safely in this little reed basket. And Pharaoh's daughter finds this baby and takes him as her own. And this is the boy who grows up to become Moses, the man who will rescue Israel from slavery. So Moses grows up, and one day, much later in his life, he has this crazy encounter with God where he comes across a bush that's on fire, but it isn't actually burning up. And God speaks from the bush, and he appoints Moses as the man he will use to deliver Israel. So Moses goes to Pharaoh to tell him this, this news that God wants his people free. And Pharaoh, he just pretty much laughs at him. He's like, Who, who's this God, Yahweh? And in fact, he's so offended by this request, he decides to make the Israelites work even harder. So discouraged, Moses goes back to God and says, listen, this plan's not going to work. But God repeats his promise that he's going to rescue them. And in fact, it's right here for the first time in the Bible that we hear the word redemption. It literally just means to purchase a slave's freedom. But God here uses this word to describe what he's going to do for enslaved Israel. And God knows Pharaoh is going to resist. So he sends 10 different plagues, one after another, like turning water into blood, sending all sorts of pests and disease. These plagues are really severe. They are severe, but we need to understand that the story is presenting these as acts of divine justice against one of the worst oppressors in the story of the Bible. And they're all aimed at the purpose of rescuing these enslaved people and defeating the gods of Egypt. This all comes to a climax at the 10th plague, where God's going to kill the firstborn sons across all Egypt. Every house, it's pretty rough. It is, but it's also God's response for how Pharaoh killed the Israelite sons. Now as you turn the page, you suddenly get two long chapters of detailed instructions for what's essentially throwing a 
dinner party with a recipe for a lamb. Yeah, but this lamb is super important. God tells the Israelites to pick it out and to prepare it to be eaten. And they're supposed to take its blood and then paint it all over the doorframe of their house. And anyone who is in that house will be spared from this final plague. And so this meal, which is called Passover, it commemorates this key moment in the story where God brings his justice on human evil, but also shows mercy by providing this substitute. There you go. That's the recap. That's what we got to by the end of last week. And so, like I said, our title today is How or Why Should I Trust in God? And the first, uh, let me... In order to do that, let's read the chapter. So chapter 12, we're going to go from verse 31, okay? Um, So chapter 12, verse 31. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Ah, leave my people, you and the Israelites, go, worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds as you said, and go and bless me. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country, for otherwise they said, we will all die. So the people took their dough before the yeast was added, and they carried it on their shoulders in kneading troughs wrapped in clothing. The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold for clothing. The Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people, and they gave them what they asked for. So they plundered the Egyptians. The Israelites they journeyed from Ramesses to Sokoth. There were about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. Many other people went up with them, and also large droves of livestock by flocks and herds. With the dough the Israelites had brought from Egypt, they baked loaves of unleavened bread. The dough was without yeast because they had been driven out of Egypt, and they did not have time to prepare food for themselves. Now the length of time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt. Because the Lord kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt, on this night all the Israelites are to keep vigil to honour the Lord for the generations to come. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, These are the regulations for the Passover meal. No foreigner may eat it, any slave you have bought may eat it after you have circumcised him, but a temporary resident or a hired worker may not eat it. It must be eaten inside the house. Take none of it outside the house. Do not break any of the bones. The whole community of Israel must celebrate it. A foreigner residing among you who wants to celebrate the Lord's Passover must have all the males in his household circumcised. Then he may take part like one born in the land. No uncircumcised man may eat it. The same law applies both to the native-born and to the foreigner residing among you. All the Israelites did just what the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, and on that very day, the Lord brought the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions. Okay, that's it. That's the passage. That's what we get to preach from this morning. And um, I believe that through this passage, God is going to reveal to us why we should trust him. And the first reason that comes out over and over is the reason is that we should trust him because God is sovereign over his people and God is faithful to his promises. And so the very first section of the passage is full of hope and promise and excitement. And the the plagues have happened. They've all happened. And Pharaoh is now letting the people go. 
And the whole section is kind of full of this, so I've highlighted a few things. Pharaoh kind of says, oh, leave, go, take your flocks, take your herds, get out of it, go. He just wants them gone. All, he's seen all the plagues happen, his firstborn son, and all the firstborn sons of the Egyptians have all died. And it's not just Pharaoh who wants them out, it's also the people too. So they're like, quick, get out, hurry, leave our land. Why are they so keen? It's because they know that these people are the people of God. And the Hebrew God has defeated all the Egyptian gods 10-0, as we heard last week. As each plague picks off one of the Egyptians' gods one by one, whether it's the, their god of frogs or their god of the Nile, the god of the Hebrews has defeated them all. These plagues show that God is sovereign over every area of life. And the first three plagues, they strike the water and the ground as the Nile bleeds, frogs rise up, and the dust turns to gnats. The second three plagues strike living flesh, so the swarms of the flies, the dead of, death of the livestock, and the human skin being covered in boils, shows of course, not just sovereign over the land, but he's sovereign over every living thing. And then the third group moves higher above into the heavens, up into the skies, where he brings destruction through the weather, through locusts that eat the on the east wind, and even blackening the sun. And so we see that God is sovereign over the earth below, over every living thing and over all creation above. He's sovereign over it all. And if the ancient world were a three-story house, then it would be the earth, the waters below, the heavens above, and God brought destruction to each of the deities that governed each area for the Egyptians. He is sovereign over it all. It's amazing. Even Pharaoh's own magicians, they could do some of the first few plagues, so they could turn water to blood, but they couldn't reverse any of them, and they couldn't do any after the third one. Only the sovereign God. It was so bad that the Pharaoh's magicians pleaded with Pharaoh, let them go, let them go, give in. And then in the ultimate reversal, whereas Pharaoh tried to kill all the firstborn sons but failed, God brings true judgment and destruction, even using the very one that he tried to kill to come and bring about that incredible victory. Isn't that what happens with Jesus? Satan tries to destroy Jesus on the cross, and yet God brings incredible salvation through raising Jesus up from the dead and bringing a great victory. He does exactly the same here with Moses. So in verse 30, um, we didn't read it, it's just before we started reading it, it says there's a great wailing as had never been heard before from all of Egypt. Pharaoh and all the people say, go, leave, get out of here, hurry, take all your stuff, lest we might die too. And so we also see that God, not only doing what he said he would do, but also he undoes what Pharaoh said he could not do. So Pharaoh said there was a bunch of things that couldn't be done, and actually God makes them happen. So throughout the chapters of the plagues, which happen in verses in chapters like 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11, we see that Pharaoh's responses are sometimes that he ignores what's going on, he just doesn't want to listen, but sometimes he's convicted and he tries to do some deals. So he says things like, well, why don't you just take the men and you can go and I offer sacrifices to your God. And the basis is, no, no. God's telling all of us have to go. And then sometimes he says, well, why don't you take the women and children and leave all your cattle and flocks here? 
and Mo says, no, no, God is saying all of us need to go. And sometimes he says, well, you can go, but can you do it here in the land? Just don't leave the land, just do it where you are. And he keeps, Pharaoh keeps kind of putting what he probably feels are quite reasonable conditions on Moses' request. But Moses stands firm and is like, no, only total freedom will do because that's what God has commanded. And do you know what? Sometimes in our society, people will tell you that, well, why do you have to take all of Christianity? Why can't you just have this bit and forget that bit? God doesn't really mind, does he? God doesn't really care about that area of your life. Moses has conviction says, no, total freedom. It's the whole thing. And we need to have the same. So in, chapter, in this, this chapter, we now see this reversal where Mo, Pharaoh is trying to do deals. We now see all these phrases. Moses, uh, Pharaoh saying, yeah, as you've requested, as you've said. So the people that took and went, he's kind of now said, yeah, you have it all. You can go. You can leave. You can, you can take what you want. You wanted it. You can have it. He's saying, go for it. And incredibly, Moses tells the people to ask the Egyptians as they leave, hey, people, go and ask the Egyptians, can we also take your silver and gold with us while we go off? And they do that, and the Egyptians give them, yeah, you can have it. Go. Just get out of it. We don't want you here. We know that your God is too powerful. Take all our silver. Take all our gold. So without raising a sword to the Egyptians, the people of God walk out of Egypt, out of slavery, with all the wealth and provisions that are needed to start a new life. Everything is provided for them. All the wealth of Egypt. And guess what? It's just as God said would happen right back in chapter 3. Because God is sovereign over his people, and God is faithful to his promises. You know, incredibly, God didn't just say it in Exodus chapter 3. He said it right back in Genesis chapter 15, when God called Abraham and said to Abraham, you're going to rise up, you're going to be a mighty nation, you're going to bless all the nations. In Genesis 15 it says this, As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. That's Egypt. And they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish that nation that they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. Incredible. God said this was going to happen back in Genesis 15, and here we're in Exodus 12. And it's all happening, it's all taking place. Why? Because God is sovereign to his people, sovereign over his people, and faithful to his promises. The third thing that we see in this first section is that um, we see that because it even it tells us that God did it. So in verse 36, it says, The Lord made the Egyptians inclined towards his people. And he brings out of Egypt a great multitude. It lists 600,000 men. So if you then plus their women, that's probably like another 600,000 women. Um, plus their kids, that's probably at least 600,000 because you know they've got contraception and all that. And so here we've got nearly 2 million people walking out. But also it says there's not just those 2 million Hebrews, there's also a great multitude. And so that would be Egyptians as well. So Egyptians would have seen this incredible sovereign God at work, defeating their gods, and said, yeah, I want to be part of that group. And so they come out as well. 
and they bring all their livestock, all their flocks, all their herds, all come out and into freedom. It's like a picture of all the animals coming out of Noah's Ark, when there's been total destruction and now they're coming out into new promised land, into new freedom. This is all happening here, and God here is doing it. These words and phrases, in fact, that we get here, repeat us, remind us back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2, where we get those phrases to go into the world, to go forth, to multiply, to increase in number, and we get all of that happening here. And those promises that God made to Abraham, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars and as many as the sand on the shore, it's all here. And they're all coming out in this multitude because God is faithful to his promises and he is sovereign over his people. God is doing it all. So why trust God? Because he's sovereign. Sovereign over the whole universe and he's certainly sovereign over us, me and you. And he will bring his promises to fruition. You know, there are incredible promises that God makes throughout the Bible that you can hold on to and you can believe in for. You can trust that he will bring to fruition. So the Bible says that he is faithful and true. He is one you can depend on. The Bible says that he will never leave you or forsake you. He's with you through the trials, through the challenges, through the highs, through the lows. That he saved you and rescued you. And he's redeemed and restored you, that he's got many rooms in his house for you, that he gives you a family, that he calls you a friend, he bids you come, and you can trust him, because he's sovereign, and he's faithful. That's one reason, this morning, you can hold on to that, you can worship God, because he's amazing. Secondly, we can trust God, because he's also sovereign, even in difficult circumstances. There's a Chinese uh, proverb that I heard the other day about a father and his son. And the father is a farmer, and they live out on a farm. And one day, um, they're, they're tending to the, their farm, and one of their horses runs away. And all the villagers come by, and they say, Oh, is it so bad that your horse ran away? And the father responds, and he says, Well, it might be bad, or it might be good. I just don't know. And then a few days later, the horse comes back with two other horses, and the villagers come along and they say, wow, isn't that amazing? And the father says, well, it might be good, it might be bad, I just don't know. And then uh, later on, so the, their son, who's a bit older now, he's training one of these two new horses, and one of them uh, bucks him off, he falls off, and he has a uh, tragic accident, and he's now disabled. And the villagers come along and say, oh, isn't that terrible? And the father says, well, it might be bad. It might be good. I don't know. And then the next day, the officers and the generals of the local army come along, and they want to uh, sign up all the able-bodied young men to the army to go and fight the war. And the villagers come along and say, oh, isn't that fortunate, you know, that your son doesn't have to go? And the father responds, well, it might be good, but it might be bad. I don't know. And it kind of goes on and on like that. And for the Chinese, the moral of the story is that basically you can never know the full scope of the story from where you are, whilst you're in it. You can't know the full end of the story. And it's not a perfect analogy for us, but all around the world, people are facing all sorts of difficult circumstances with their health, through their loved ones, their relationships, with the environment, 
with the earthquakes that we've been praying about, with the economy, with governments, with wars, with famine, with strife. Horrendous things are happening all the time. And as I watched the news this week, I felt God saying, I'm sovereign even over difficult circumstances. And then I got to this part of the passage. And I wondered, and I just spent some time meditating in it. And I wondered, God, why is this detail here? And this is what the passage says. It says this, now the length of time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. And I just started thinking about that 430 years. See, that 430 years, imagine the lifespan of a normal person is 70 years. So that's six generations of people that were born, raised, married, had kids, had grandkids, and then died, all whilst the Hebrews were in slavery. They never saw freedom. They never saw God coming through. They didn't hear about Moses. They didn't see God rescue in their lifetime or in their entire nation. All they knew was slavery to a foreign power, and they could rightly ask God, how is that good? What are you doing about it, God? What is going on? From their position in the story, they could not see what God was doing, what was going on. And now we have the benefit of hindsight, and we can read through several thousand years of history in our Bibles. And we can see God's overarching story of rescue and salvation and redemption and see him at work and see him redeeming and restoring. We see the patterns of redemption and the links that he goes to to reveal himself to his people and to save them. And yet, when we go through challenges ourselves, we can come to God too and say, God, how is this good? How are you working in this bit of my life? How are you sovereign even over this difficult circumstance? How often do we look at our tiny little bit of life in our week or in our day and wonder, God, how can you be good because this happened to me? And I'm, I'm sure that the Hebrews must have been missed with God loads of times. And when you think about it, the whole of Exodus actually is missed with really God kind of moments. What are you doing, God? Moments. Let me list a few. See, the ones that knew salvation through Moses also knew their, their firstborn sons being killed. Just think about that. Moses was the only boy his age. Every time Moses had a birthday, he's reminded that no one else in that year is having a birthday because all the other Egyptian boys were killed when he was born. And so, whilst they might have known salvation through Moses, they, they also knew tragedy in their lives. And they could think, how is this good? Moses is saved but given to the foreign enemy power. Not to the Hebrews, but to the Egyptians. And at that time, when his mother has to hand him over to the daughter of Pharaoh, she might wonder, how is this good? Moses tries to save his people, but then he's banished to the wilderness for 40 years, and he might wonder, God, how is this good? I'm in the desert. Wandering around, doing that. It's like a double... Prison sentence, double lifespan prison sentence for the UK. Moses goes to Pharaoh, and the first three plagues affect everyone. Everyone is affected. And so the other Hebrews might have been grumbling, be like, How is this good, Moses? What on earth are you doing? Why have we got all these frogs and gnats on us? They can find, they finally um, 
get to go, and yet they have to kill their very best year-old perfect lamb, which is the very one that they want to use to breed so that the future ones are also perfect and healthy and good. It's first fruit given right here in Exodus, and they could wonder, God, why is, how is this good? Why can't I just take the run of the litter? Why can't I just take the delicious blood? Why does it matter where it comes from? Why is it going to come from my perfect land? Why is it going to come from my spotless land? They finally get to go, and yet, yeah, they have to kill their firstborn land, and Pharaoh lets them go, and then they've got the enemy behind them, and the river at high tide in front of them. And they might be thinking, Moses, what are you doing? God, how is this good? They get through, and it's great, but then other people in the land try to kill them. And we're going to hear next week, as we do like an all-age service, where Rachel's going to preach how God actually leads them away so that they don't have to face war and terror. But in that moment, they get through the waters, they pass through the Red Sea, and people are trying to kill them. How is this good, God? What are you doing to us? They end up in the wilderness with no bread, no food, no water. How is that good? Do you get the picture? At any stage in our life, from our perspective, we just don't understand how anything can be good or bad. We just don't know. Ultimately, we'll only know in the passage of time. And I think it's why when Moses asked God for a sign at the burning bush, and he says, well, how will I know you're with me? God says, once you've done it all, you'll come up on this mountain, you'll look back and you'll see that I was with you every step of the way. It's because often it's not until we're in the high place with God in glory that we look back and we see his faithfulness and his fruitfulness happening. I believe that God wants us to know that he is sovereign all the time. He is good all the time. We don't always see the big picture, but if Exodus tells us anything, it tells us that he is at work. In a week when over 28,000 people have died in an earthquake, we can look and think, how is this good for anyone? God, how can you let this happen? And we don't know why bad stuff happens. We have ideas. We've got theological ideas, and we can come up with stuff. But when you're sitting there with a child who's lost his parents, none of that's going to do. But we do know that God is sovereign, that he cares, that he listens. What we do know is that God is not evil. He does not lie. He hears the prayers of the saints, and he's at work restoring and renewing all things. Through Jesus, he identifies with all those who are in hurt, or pain, or are suffering, or experience betrayal, or unjust behaviours, or heinous crimes, and even death itself. And he has promised that Jesus will return, and that there will be no more pain, no more tears, no more suffering. There will be a resurrection life for all that put their faith in him. Why can you trust in God? Because he is sovereign even in difficult circumstances. So Philippians says this, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, we say all circumstances, all situations, all difficulties, will guard your heart and your minds. It will guard your your attitudes and your thinking. It will guard it in Christ Jesus. How do we know all this from the text? Because incredibly, it says, that's the 430 years, it says, because the Lord 
kept vigil that night. The Lord that night took time to care for his people. He kept vigil. Just as there have been incident after incident throughout the Exodus story and throughout our lives where we can wring our fist at God and say, how can you let this happen, God? This book is also littered with God's sovereign hand and it's epitomised here with God keeping vigil, but it's also epitomised at the end of chapter 2, when God hears their groaning, he remembers his covenant, he sees their slavery, and then he acts to restore and redeem and renew. And I know you guys love a table, so I'm going to give you a table, and uh, I know time's ticking by, but this is good. Are you with me? Yeah. Is this helping? Yeah. Okay, right, we'll keep going. So it's epitomised throughout Moses' life. I just want to give you a table of Moses' life. So this is God's hand, working in Moses' life personally in a way that he's later going to lead and work with the Israelites as a nation. So Moses is drawn out of water even as the other babies face the watery grave. And the Israelites will be drawn out of water even as the Egyptians face the watery grave. Pharaoh's daughter hears the cry of the baby and takes pity on him and then brings him out of the water safely. The Lord is the cry of the Israelites takes pity on them and brings them out of water safely. Miriam watched over Moses as he went through the waters unharmed. And Miriam was there again as the people of God passed through the waters unharmed. And you can read about a song and her prayers in chapter 15 that she sings over the people of Israel. Moses, when found by Pharaoh's daughter, went from a slave child to riches. And the Israelites went from slavery and walked out of all the riches of Egypt. They went from the oppressed slaves to royal priests. In Moses' first family, there was Hebrews and Egyptians mixed together. In the household of Israel, we gain an understanding of how Egypt, Egyptians and Hebrews are mixed together in one great multitude of these millions of people walking out together, trusting in sovereign God, enjoying the blessings together as all nations come and worship. Moses sees the oppression of the Hebrews an Egyptian is killed, and then Moses flees east and ends up spending 40 years in the desert where he lives. God sees the oppression of the Hebrews. Egyptians are killed. Then Moses leads the people east before spending 40 years in the desert. On entering the desert, Moses fights off shepherds in order to provide water for seven women and their flocks. Moses will later defend the innocent against false shepherds and lift up his shepherd's staff and provide water for the entire nation. Moses encounters God miraculously at the burning bush, and at the end of the Exodus, Moses encounters God miraculously on Mount Sinai. In both of these circumstances, they involve an invitation by God to approach. They involve a warning not to come too close. Both are accompanied by fire. Both cause people to hide their face. Both are accompanied by miraculous signs. Both summon Moses and Israel to respond in obedience, and both take place on the same mountain. Both times, God reveals himself and says, I am who I am, Yahweh, the Lord. And in Exodus 34, when he's at the Mount Sinai again, he says, the Lord, the Lord, a God who is merciful and gracious. Over and over and over, God is at work, sovereign over the whole of history, past, present and future. And we can't always see from our perspective if it's good or it's bad, but God knows, and he says that he is able to turn all things to good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. 
And one last thing I'd like to just show you in this section is that in Romans 8.31, I won't read the whole thing, but it basically says why we are conquerors in Christ Jesus and why we don't have to fear anything. And right in the middle, it says, so who is it that condemns in verse 34? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Jesus is keeping vigil for us. Praise God. So who can separate from the love of Christ? Trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, or nothing. In all these things we're more than corporate through Christ who loved us. Isn't that amazing? Oh, yeah. Why can you trust in God? So he's sovereign over his people, so he's faithful to his promises, because he's faithful even during difficult circumstances. And so we'll finish off then with who is this place for? It's for everyone who wants to. The last bit of our passage says this. Um, a foreigner residing among you who wants to celebrate the Lord's Passover can do, but they need to be circumcised first. And the same law applies to both the native and the foreign. So this is about freedom from slavery for the sake of freedom to God. And anyone who wants to switch allegiance from Egypt to Israel, from slave to free, from Satan to God, can do. And this passage we see that they can do that by being sealed with a sign of the covenant, which for them was through circumcision, and for us was through the seal of the Holy Spirit. If you want to become a Christian today and believe in Jesus and put your trust in him, how can you think you can do it if you want to? You can come to faith in him. You can put your trust in him. And it's not freedom to do what you want. The point of Exodus is to find deliverance from serving an old master in order to find delight in serving a new one. His name's King Jesus, and he's the one who's seated on the throne. And incredibly, um, it says this weird phrase, that none of the lamb's bones were broken. None of the lamb's bones were broken. They were slain, and they were cut, and the door was painted on the door frames. And this is another one that you could add to your table, of something that Moses went through personally, that the people of God went through. Because Moses went through a personal Passover. So at the Passover, innocent, spotless lambs were sacrificed and the blood of the lambs were placed on the door frames of every household. And all that anyone needed was enough faith to cover the doors with the lamb and they were saved. It didn't matter if they had all the answers. It didn't matter if they doubted if it would work. It didn't matter if they had questions. It didn't matter if they were angry with God about the slavery that they experienced. All that mattered was, did they have enough faith to cover their door frames with the blood of the Lamb? That's all that mattered. That's the amount of faith you need to come to faith in Jesus, to put your trust in Him. Do you have enough faith to take a step and say, Lord, I admit that I'm a sinner, I believe that Jesus paid the price for my sin, and now I commit my life to Him. And see, Moses, I think Moses is probably the only one who had no doubt that this would have worked. Because he went through a personal experience of the Passover. And I know there's a few life groups asking about Exodus chapter 4, where God, Moses had just met God at the burning bush, and then in chapter 4, God tries to kill Moses. And people are wondering, what's that about? I think I know the answer. 
Well, I think this tells us something about it. Let me just explain, and then we're going to get the band back on. So what happens is that Moses meets God at the burning bush, and then and, and God summons Moses to go and do what God's called him to. But then God meets with Moses in chapter 4, and what we find out is that Moses has not circumcised his son. He's not He's not sealed his own family with the mark of the covenant. And so his wife, the poorer, comes and circumcises his son, cuts off his foreskin, and touches his feet. It's, I told you it's a weird, it's a weird passage. That's why the life people wanted to talk about it. And they touch his feet with the foreskin that's been circumcised. And the theologians tell us that this foreskin would have blood on it. And so Zipporah, his wife, puts the blood on Moses' feet. And then God, who was going to kill Moses, passes over and does not, he doesn't die. Moses experiences a Passover because he's sealed with a sign of the covenant. And then God calls the whole nation to slay lambs, to put the blood on the door frames, and God's judgment passes over them, and the whole of the nation experiences God's judgment passing over. And then and, uh, and then in John 19, we read this. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus, they found that he was already dead. So they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear. The man who saw it has given testimony, and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled, and it quotes Exodus 12, what we just read, that his bones will not be broken. Here in John 19, we are being told that the lamb who is sacrificed on our behalf is Jesus on the cross. And just like the perfect spotless lambs in Exodus, None of his bones were broken either. And so salvation for Moses came through the shedding of blood in his place to cover his sin so that God would pass over him. Salvation for the Hebrews came by the shedding of a spotless lamb without broken bones in their place so that God would pass over them. And salvation for you and me comes from the shedding of the Lamb of God, Jesus, in our place to cover our sins so that the judgment of God passes over us. Amen? Amen? Let's get the band back up. Why should I trust in Jesus? Because he is sovereign. He is sovereign. He is faithful to his promises. He is sovereign over his people. He is sovereign over difficult circumstances. He is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. And you can put your trust in him and he will not let you down. Come on, let's stand together. Thanks for listening. We meet on Sundays at 10am at the Royal Grammar School in Guildford. We look forward to seeing you.